Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I've come to think about this podcast as content that supports business owner wellness and flourishing. That really gives us a lot of permission and potential topics that we can tackle together during our weekly episodes. During last week's episode, Sandy M Hospital's CEO, Maggie Hudson, discussed culture as one of the many topics that we covered together. And it's actually, in part, the inspiration for this week's episode. Isn't it ironic that good performance can actually lead to cultural complacency? Author and researcher Jim Collins famously quipped, good is the enemy of great. Along this line of thinking, a concept that's present in much of Collins' research is this idea of preserving the core while stimulating progress. Progress is healthy in a changing world. Who doesn't like talking about the opportunities afforded through progress? Like a persistent and incurable itch, the drive for progress in a highly visionary company can never be satisfied under any conditions, even if the company succeeds enormously. The drive for progress doesn't wait for the external world to say it's time to change, or it's time to improve, or it's time to invent something new. No, it's like the drive inside of a great artist or prolific inventor. It's simply there, pushing outward and onward. The interplay between core and progress is one of the most important findings of Collins' work. He references the genius of the and, it's the dichotomy of the unchangeable core while also being highly progressive. Often culture is a category that is both core ideology and something that actually needs to evolve. That makes it a difficult dichotomy to juggle the preservation and progress of a culture simultaneously. In earlier episodes, we've discussed author Patrick Lencioni's content in books. Specifically in his book, The Advantage, he discusses what he calls organizational health. Functionally, he covers the topic of culture and its integration with strategy, but today I wanted to dig into the topic a little bit deeper. In 2019, Ben Horwitz wrote a book called What You Do Is Who You Are. Horwitz is a household name among Silicon Valley buffs. He's an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. In this book, he discusses the importance of corporate culture based upon his own experiences as well as historical examples. Before we can really jump into the topic of culture, let's define it. Let's provide a basic framework to discuss this otherwise nebulous topic. Horwitz suggests that one way to think about culture might be the way that employees could answer questions such as, is the quality of this document good enough? Or do I need to keep working on it? Or how hard do I really need to study the competition? The answer to these types of questions about professional behavior, habits, expectations, might actually shed some light on the type of culture that exists within your own company. Maybe the best definition of culture is how your company makes a decision when you're not actually there. Some believe that culture can be thought of as a type of roadmap to your company's fullest potential both where your company is trying to go, as well as the road it should take to get there. It's vitally important to recognize that culture is an abstract, shape-shifting concept. What works for one company will not necessarily work for another. 
Finally, culture can be thought of as an impression an employee carries with them after they leave the company. They might not necessarily remember the everyday ins and outs of their role or all the people that they worked with along the way, but they will remember how they felt during their time working at the company. So now that we have a working definition or framework to think about culture, I wanted to share a few of the concepts that Horowitz identified in his book. One proven culture tactic is to keep what works. We already hinted at this concept earlier when we discussed Jim Collins' research. Steve Jobs followed this principle at Apple when he turned the company around in the late 90s. He did it by refocusing on the user experience that had been central to the brand's creation. By returning to the core of their business, Jobs was able to right the troubled ship and help Apple become the behemoth that it is today. Another proven culture tactic is to create a shocking rule to emphasize a specific cultural pillar. For example, in the mid-2000s, the New York Giants coach Tim Coughlin introduced a new rule whereby players were required to be early for all meetings under a penalty of $1,000. This shocking rule certainly made waves, but ultimately it created a team of men that were ready to work even before the time to work had come. Look no further than two Super Bowl wins that they collected during Coughlin's tenure to explore if this tactic could actually be helpful. Another interesting tactic to positively impact culture is to simplify. Let's look to General Motors when they brought in Mary Barra back in 2014 as the CEO. At the time, the company was 106 years old, bulky, political, and incredibly bureaucratic. So to positively disrupt the culture, she reduced the company's 10-page dress code to just two words, dress appropriately. The new dress code empowered, but it required managers to manage. It encouraged managers to take ownership of their teams, and it ultimately reinforced the culture that she was attempting to build within GM. When Netflix CEO Reed Hastings wanted to transition the business away from DVDs to streaming, he had to make a tough decision in order to ensure a smooth transition process. He used a very public decision to demonstrate a cultural priority. During a meeting, he kicked out the executives that were not actually involved in the streaming initiative. By choosing his top priority, streaming, over office politics, Hastings made his vision of the company and for the company clear and thus helped Netflix become what it is today. Hastings couldn't just say that streaming was a priority. He had to demonstrate it. And finally, the last cultural tactic Horowitz shares is incorporating outside leadership. There's a long list of companies that have utilized this tactic to positively shape their culture, but Horowitz actually chose to use himself as an example in this particular tactic. At LoudCloud, Horowitz brought in a new head of sales who was a complete cultural misfit. Though the new hire made waves within the company, with a little bit of flexibility, Horowitz was able to find the right place for the new head of sales, and his company and his culture benefited because of it. If you bring in outside leadership, it will make everyone highly uncomfortable. But that's what cultural change actually feels like. Culture, like the organizations that create them, must evolve to meet new challenges. All cultures are aspirational. The point isn't to be perfect, just better than you were yesterday. While you can draw inspiration from other cultures, don't try to adopt other organizations' ways of doing things. Culture begins with deciding what you value most. Culture ultimately matters because there's evidence to suggest it impacts performance. We can divide performance into two different categories, tactical performance and adaptive performance. They're both important, but actually mutually opposed. Most organizations manage tactical performance, which is the ability to execute against a specific plan. However, just as important is adaptive performance, which is the ability to diverge from the plan. These opposite categories of performance create a unique tension that very few leaders have actually learned how to balance. 
Strategy helps us focus our energy on a few critical targets. It's a force of strength. Culture, on the other hand, allows us to react to the unpredictable. It is a force of agility, and together, they create a complete view of performance. Thus, we define a high-performing culture as a system that maximizes adaptive performance through total motivation. Total motivation is sometimes referred to in its abbreviated version of TOMO, is the simple theory that why people work determines how well they'll work. There are six reasons why people work within the TOMO framework. Three lead to higher performance and three lead to lower performance. Total motivation is actually shockingly predictive. When thousands of people are asked about the highest performing cultures they can think of, the same companies get mentioned time and time again. Southwest Airlines, Apple Stores, Starbucks, Nordstrom's, and Whole Foods. However, the same people that just name these unique cultures struggle to actually definitively answer what makes them different than their peers. Within the outlier groups of culture, they each have their own unique personality, values, beliefs, and they actually sell different things. However, when you dig in and actually look at their employees' total motivation scores, the differences jump out at you right away. Starbucks Tomo was 18 points higher than its peers. Apple stores were 14 points higher than their competitors. Nordstrom's was 15 points higher and Whole Foods was 14 points higher. To build a high-performing culture, you must first understand what drives peak performance in individuals. The total motivation framework provides a way to approach culture with intentionality. Though it's a simple concept, why you work affects how well you'll work. So stating the obvious, culture matters, but how much? Harvard Business School guru John Cotter studied stock prices of firms that he had identified as having great cultures and leadership over an 11-year time frame. Stock prices increased by 901% for firms with great culture compared to just 74% for its peer group. That's over 1,100% more for the high-performing cultures. In the book Primed to Perform by Neil Doshi and Lindsay McGregor, they provide an outline for the total motivation framework and its powerful insights. It might actually be the best book I've read on the topic of culture. It's discussed in an actionable way and also shares a lot of the compelling empirical data that's informed the approach. It turns out that there's a spectrum of reasons or motives for why people perform an activity. In the first three, they're referred to as a direct motive and they're directly linked to the activity that drives performance. The next three are indirect motives and are further removed from the actual work itself and frequently harm performance. Looking at direct motives, they are play, purpose, and potential. Play is the most powerful and enduring motive. It's the most powerful driver of performance. Play in the workplace is when we do what we do simply because we enjoy doing it. Curiosity and experimentation are at the core of play. People intrinsically enjoy learning and adapting. Play at work doesn't just mean playing ping pong in the break room. People feel play at work when they're fueled by the work itself, not necessarily the distractions. The second most powerful motive is purpose. The purpose motive occurs when you do the work or the activity simply because you value the outcome of the activity rather than the activity itself. It's possible to not actually enjoy the work itself, but to enjoy the impact of the work. So for example, Apple creates products that actually inspire and empower its customers. That purpose is compelling and credible and can be a motivator for many of Apple's employees. The purpose motive is one step removed from the work and it's typically a little less powerful than the motive of play. The third and final motive that falls into the direct category is potential. 
The potential motive occurs when you find a second-order outcome of the work that aligns with your values and beliefs. You do the work because it will eventually lead to something that you believe is important, such as a personal goal. The next three motives are indirect motives, and they're further removed from the work itself and frequently harm performance. The first indirect motive is emotional pressure. This occurs when emotions, such as disappointment, guilt, or shame, compel you to perform an activity. These emotions are related to your beliefs, self-perceptions, or even external forces. Some might stay in their job simply because of the prestige. While, as a kid, maybe you practice the piano purely to avoid disappointing your mom. When the motive for work is emotional pressure, our performance will typically suffer. The second indirect motive is economic pressure. Economic pressure is when you do the work solely to win a reward or avoid a punishment. In business, this occurs when we're trying to win a bonus, a promotion, or even avoid being fired. A big misconception about the economic pressure motive is that it's strictly a matter of money. In a study examining over 10,000 participants, researchers found that household income and economic motive were unrelated. People with any income level were able to feel the economic pressures at work equally. The truth is, money is weak glue. If money is the sole reason you're participating in an activity, it will typically diminish your performance. If you're participating for other reasons, money certainly wouldn't cause problems, but it really can't be the primary ingredient of your motivation. The most indirect motive of all is inertia. With inertia, your motivation for working is so distant from the work itself that you can no longer say where it actually comes from. You do what you do simply because you did it yesterday. This leads to the worst performance of all. So in that light, it's actually possible for a great employee retention rate to actually not be a good thing in all scenarios. It isn't enough to have employees stay. Why they stay is critically important. Sometimes a diluted culture combined with high employee inertia can actually explain a high retention rate that's combined with low performance. To combat this, Zappos famously introduced a quit bonus. After four weeks of new hire training, it offered employees a bonus to quit. They didn't want employees staying just because. They knew how terrible the inertia motive was for team performance. What's really ironic is that so much management training today and so much of our performance reviews today hinge upon these indirect tactics that really ramp up emotional and financial pressures on our teammates. Why we work often changes how we work. When we're motivated by direct motives, play, purpose, and potential, we go above and beyond, and the results are observable. We talk about Adam Grant and his research a lot on this podcast. For those of you that are not as familiar with Grant, he's a Wharton professor and researcher. He studied sales professionals, but organized them in this experiment by total motivation score. The salespeople with the highest indirect motives, for example, emotional pressure, financial pressure, and inertia, produced about $234 of revenue per hour. Conversely, salespeople with the highest direct motives, for example, play, purpose, and potential, generated $375 per hour. That's a 60% increase. That's what I like about total motivation as a framework. TOMO is an evidence-based approach to building a high-performing culture through the science of motivation. So where have you found play, purpose, and potential within your own work? Where have you made decisions because of indirect motives, such as emotional pressure, financial pressure, and inertia? What motivates your employees and colleagues? Do you tend to motivate others through play, purpose, and potential? Or do you default to the easier and less effective indirect motives? If this topic of play, purpose, and potential really interests you, 
I'll share a couple of resources. First, I'd start with Primed to Perform, one word, primedtoperform.com, to actually get your own total motivation score. As I mentioned earlier, the book Primed to Perform is loaded with actionable ideas. I'll link to that book in the podcast notes. And finally, feel free to reach out to us at the lab. We're actually offering focus summits to our clients, which could be a great way to further understand play, purpose, and potential within your own life. We use a proven process to cut through the fog and gain clarity and insights. Do you want a greater understanding of what actually drives you and where you feel the most comfortable contributing vocationally? We even offer an abbreviated two-hour State of the Union experience to allow clients to better understand what the process is and assess whether a facilitated discovery process could be right for them. So again, we're here to help, excited to continue the conversation, and until we do it again, be well.